Broadsheet Radio. Welcome to another episode of Shared History. The best a man can get. I don't even know what that's from. What? Gillette. Oh. oh I had to oh, look oh. it up because I had it kind of stuck in my head. And I was like, oh, I don't want to say that. But honestly, if we look at a lot of history, if it's not the best a man can get, he's going to rewrite it. So it makes yeah. it look good. So yeah, that's pretty accurate. Again, all of our slogans are going into just, you know, they're like, oh. Making history seem sad. Yeah, we started this trend of doing these taglines, and I don't think that we realized how just depressed we were going to start every (laughs) single episode, because either just taglines, especially old slogans, are so bad, uh, and the new ones aren't any better, and uh, everything is made up and the points don't matter. Well, Uh, new slogans, they don't have slogans. They've got, like... Commercials that are like mini cinematic masterpieces where you're like, oh, like there's there's a narrative and I'm crying now. What is this? Oh, it's a Jeep. (laughs) Yeah. Why am I crying at a Jeep? (laughs) Wow, I really could save big money at Menards. (laughs) This touched me emotionally. Speaking Uh of touching me emotionally, that's a bad segue. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to introduce our guest this week. She is an author and a screenwriter. She just released the sixth book of her Glasgow Kiss series of crime thrillers. The new one is called Alone in the Dark. Um, This summer, she also released, because I'm pretty sure she's a demigod, uh, she also released a time travel fantasy set in Glasgow called Before Again. That came out this past summer. And she she wrote The Stranger for Storytell, and she's got a new series on Substack that we will get into later because it's relevant to our topic and we don't want no spoilers. It's Claire S. Duffy. Woo! Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely to have you back. We, uh, I had the pleasure of having Claire on our very first episode of Under the Kilt with Adam McNamara. And... I um, loved her, and I kept her, and I stole her, and she's mine now. (laughs) Very Um, happily so as well. Claire is recording from inside a cage in Natalie's basement. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Send Mm -hmm. help. I've made made real a scene from her book series. Uh, I'm trying to blink for help, and then I'm realizing that only you two can see the cameras. (laughs) No one will see this. That's no good. (laughs) We are too powerful. Uh, I purposely introduced you this time, Claire, as Claire S. Duffy, because if you want to read all those fantastic books I just talked about, uh, or if you want to find her website, it helps to know that she writes under C.S. Duffy or Claire S. Duffy. Uh, So her website is C.S. Duffy. Duffy, Oh, my God, I can't talk. C.S. Duffy writer dot com. This is this is so that everyone can find you with ease. Yes. And not anyone else. But you know what? I've just found out. So. Natalie heard this story a few months ago on Under the Kilt. When I first started publishing on Amazon, I found there was already uh, Claire Duffy, and she writes incest porn. <laughs> which I, my grandma I listened, found. Your grandma found? And read 
thinking it was me. And not only her, like a series of elderly relatives. It was like for months, it would just come back to me through the grapevine. <laughs> Somebody's read Claire Duffy's books. And I'm like, oh. No. But was grandma like trying to be supportive of like, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. you know, good, good for you. Yeah, she was like, the, the lighting was good. <laughs> <laughs> And then you're like, Grandma, that wasn't me. Oh, thank God. <laughs> exactly. Like, like, I can spell and my grammar is better than um, that. But you know what's really bad? And I just noticed this like a few weeks ago, so I don't know when it's happened. Claire Duffy's unpublished those books. And now I'm really paranoid that she's heard me talking about her books. Oh, and, it's no. them, and I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, you do you. You know, if it's presenting <laughs> adults, I say, knock yourself out. Claire well, Duffy. she reached her sales goals on those books because of your family thinking that they were That's good true. books. So she was able, she was like, ah, I can finally retire. That could be it. She I don't know why now. there's a bunch of uh, elderly folks from Scotland <laughs> purchasing my books, but hey. I've got an audience. Exactly. I mean, I pretty much now say that I'm, uh, I'm like, I'm huge in Scotland. I just keep telling my agent that. Uh, oh, you are. We talk about you like, I'm all the time. It's such a big deal in Scotland now. Don't worry about it. All Scottish people know each other, and they all have just collectively in their group meetings been like, Natalie, yeah, we know her. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All of us who are like related to the clans, and you know, we're all McDonald's <laughs> who fought yeah. in Culloden, and we talk about Natalie in our. Yeah. We have a WhatsApp. We have a Culloden WhatsApp. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would believe that all Scots know each other based on just every conversation I have with Adam <laughs> and everyone Adam might, knows. Well, that's the thing. It might be more that Adam knows all Scots. <laughs> and so he is the, the, the connection between every other Scottish person. It's possible. <laughs> it is very possible. Claire, we didn't give you a warning about this. So we're kind of putting you on the spot, but we have a, we've started a little segment on shared history where we, just bring something that we've discovered recently that we want to share with each other. Let me be very clear. None of these are actually like groundbreaking discoveries. But, you know, much like in history, uh, lots of old white men plant flags and things and claim it as their own. We've been doing that with pop culture things that we've found or uh, new trends that we have quote unquote discovered recently. <laughs> so just like those old men uh, didn't mm. discover shit. What if, is there anything that you have discovered recently that you would like to tell our listeners about? Oh my goodness, historical discoveries. Oh, it, it doesn't have to be historical. Oh, actually, yes, I do. I have a good one. It's a little bit, well, it's, I don't know if it really counts as a discovery because I learned it on a historical walking tour. So I wasn't exactly, I, I've started this little like geeky habit that I'm a bit obsessed with of going on these walking tours of Glasgow. And I think it's because during lockdown, there were so many things that I was like, if only I could do blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, I didn't do that before. What am I talking about? <laughs> so when, you know, like quarantine kind of ended and things started opening up, I was like, right, I'm going to start doing all the things. And I've been like going to theater, which has been amazing. And I started this crazy aerial lessons. That I think I'm going to try and join the circus. And the other one was like going to, you know, museums and like, you know, being a tourist in my city and stuff like that. So anyway, so I've been doing all these different um, walks. And last week um, I went to one that was called the Dark Side of Glasgow, which I was Ooh. just, I loved it. It was like 9 p.m. 
on the Friday before um, Halloween, so it was like all creepy and it was the darkest part of the city, um, which weirdly quite a lot of it overlapped before again. So I'm sitting there at the back going, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, I wrote about that, I wrote about that. I know all of this already. Exactly, except one thing I didn't know is that a lot of, so this, the city centre of Glasgow, a big part of it is called the Merchant City. Now there's a bit of a dark history to do with that because a lot of it was the, the transatlantic slave trade was what kind of brought so much money into Glasgow and why um, the Merchant City sort of became the Merchant City. Um, but one thing I didn't know is that before they started building it all up and creating these big like, you know, grand boulevards and whatnot, there was a huge, actually two huge graveyards so then when they started building, they just paved over the graveyards and made them much smaller. So whenever you're walking around the Merchant City, like shopping on a Saturday afternoon, you are walking over hundreds and hundreds of years old dead bodies. Oh <laughs> I was God. like, my friend and I just looked at each other and we're like, oh, I love this. I mean, it's <laughs> awful, but I love it also. You start to like tread lightly, like, oh, I don't want to wake mm -hmm. anyone up. <laughs> I'm going to stop well, stomping. That, yeah, because like, we were, um, that part of the tour was like standing outside the graveyard. So she was kind of like, so that's the bit that still exists. And then this whole road is, you know, like it used to end, you know, like a block down the road or whatever. And we we're like, oh, okay. And then gradually it just sort of dawned on everyone. So we're standing on it then. <laughs> She's like, yeah. And I'm like, Oh, okay. And then it happened again, like a few streets later. And I'm like, this entire city is just a, a big old graveyard. I feel like people don't realize that, but like there, there's only so much space in the cemeteries that you know now. Mm -hmm. So like, there's been a lot of people throughout right. all of time. Uh, I, lo I love that uh, in, which just made me think of in Rome, they keep trying to build a subway. There's been a, a subway branch uh, yeah. that has been under construction for decades because every time, like, they're like, maybe eventually this branch will open. But every time they try to, they, like, discover, a, like, more ruins and antiquities. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, fuck, now this is an active dig site. We can't. <laughs> yeah. And it just happens all, all of the time. Uh Chicago has the uh, is called, actually technically called everyone. Everyone listening to this podcast just rolled their eyes at me because <laughs> I've definitely said this before. And also, I make everything about Chicago, but Chicago is called the second city because it is this. We rebuilt the city, so some of like a lot of Chicago is. I mean, the entire beaches. If you go to the beaches in Chicago, that's all built on debris that was pushed out into the lake after the fire to build out what we now know as our like beautiful lake shore. So I'm not saying that there are bodies under there, but I'm also not saying there are bodies under there. It's literally I mean, like when you put out a campfire and you have to throw sand over it. That's what the beach is. Just to put yeah. out the ash. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so depressing. Yeah. Also, I love this idea of, you know, the whole like, no New Yorker has been to the Empire State Building. And then quarantine happened and people are like oh my god there's a lot of cool stuff in my city i should go do i still don't mm -hmm. think any new yorkers have been to the empire state building but like in iowa in des moines at least there's mm -hmm. a state park just outside of des moines and like right once quarantine ended you saw all of these parents taking their kids out who you know have never taken them to a park in their life and i'm like good <laughs> oh it was much the same in scotland we often say that like the day that quarantine ended just the entire population of Glasgow went like up the nearest mountain. 
and they had like never you know because the mountains are less than an hour's drive from most of Glasgow and usually you're like well I know they're there I'll go next weekend or next weekend or next weekend and then suddenly you couldn't and I can remember being like all I want to do is a hill walk I want to go up a mountain and breathe the (laughs) air and I'm like when do I ever do this and it was hilarious like there was literally traffic jams of like people on these little paths oh my gosh just being like so desperate to get up like conic hill or whatever it's um yeah (laughs) well and with people being locked up for so long like there were actual environmental like progress made of people just staying you know inside and not polluting and then even going to like a beautiful park it was now even more beautiful because it could absolutely prosper and then you had all the Glaswegians heading up, like, you know, with a can of beer and they were like wearing <laughs> flip flops and you know, all of the really keen mountaineers are like, how very dare you go and pass, you know, with their, their backpacks and their, um, <laughs> this, the sticks and all the, like the proper gear. And these guys are all like, all right, guys, here we go up the mountain. <laughs> uh, I definitely, I quite loved, I mean, obviously I hated lockdown, but one thing I did love about it was really rediscovering the city because when mm-hmm. all you could do was go for walks. Yeah, I just I mean, that's kind of where um, like my book before again came from, because I kept on like walking around corners and finding these, you know, abandoned buildings that I had just never looked at before never noticed or, you know, areas that I was like, I would just get the subway past or under or like cabs through. And all of a sudden I was walking because I moved in the middle of lockdown. So I also had like a new area to explore and like walking into town, which I would just never do. I would always get, you know, public transport or, or whatever if I was going into town but when you it wasn't on you had to walk and then just finding all these little corners and then getting curious about well why why is that building there in like the middle of a street and everything else has been knocked down like what's that about and then coming home and googling it and I mean obviously I'm a massive geek but that yeah <laughs> <laughs> definitely helped a bit there I love that your 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 discovery is basically rediscovering your home the history that surrounds you is so sweet (laughs) well yeah although here hold on i have one more um i have one more grave anecdote um that just picks up what you were saying about like the space and everything i I did know this already but i love it and i'm definitely going to work it into a future book so the biggest well there's quite a few graveyards in in glasgow but one of the the biggest and the most famous is called the necropolis so it's in the east end of the city it's famous for well a lot of reasons it is the most like creepy atmospheric graveyard i've been to and i'm a little bit fascinated by by graveyards if you ever come to glasgow you have to go like there's all these really like creepy you know gothic plinths and stuff and it's actually the source of the medical theory that um richer people live longer because some medical student in like the 17 1800s or something went around the necropolis taking a note of the you know like the life birth and death dates of people and the height of their plinths because obviously the richer you were the like higher the, like the gravestone or the you know um statue that was on the gravestone or whatever and so putting the, like, the correlation between the height and the the duration of the life worked out that the the richer you are the longer you live and that's something that's like still taught in universities all over the world today and it comes from the necropolis oh my gosh in america that's just because healthcare is so cost prohibitive uh, yeah (laughs) and it's designed that way yeah it's almost like the system was designed that way almost (laughs) which is yeah the system isn't broken the system works yeah (laughs) it's just not working for you yes Like for much of history, that like that was the case here as well. If you couldn't access medical care, if you couldn't access fresh, you know, food, fruit, whatever, 
that was exactly what that was about. But the best bit about the Narcopolis, other than all the ghosts, which I won't start talking about because then that <laughs> will become the whole episode, um, is the fact that so Scots as are very canny, as you know, we're very like into making money where we can, as every delegate in Glasgow is finding out right now when like they booked a Airbnb six months ago and now the guy's like, Oh actually it's gonna be a thousand pounds more than I originally said. But you know, we're out to make a buck, you've got to do it. So because space is obviously at a premium as the city like grew up around this graveyard because this graveyard is like hundreds and hundreds of years old what people who owned like family plots did was dig up their relatives dig a deeper hole stick great granny like 10 feet underground and then sell the plot above to like some unsuspecting (laughs) other people Oh yeah, I love a bunk. I love a bunk grave. Right, (laughs) it is a double-decker grave, and apparently, like, um, archaeologists started finding this a while ago. They would like they would find one and be like, "Hold on a minute, there's another coffin under here." And yeah, like how like I love that. That's That's one of my favorite facts about Glaswegians. (laughs) I also I love that I love that you have given us. a tasty morsel of Glaswegian history and Scottish history, because I'm 90% sure, as somebody who subscribes to your Substack, uh, that you're not talking about Scottish history with us today. So it's no. I'm glad that I'm glad that we gave everybody a little bit of taste. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can always count on me to talk about anything other than the subject that I've actually. <laughs> I'm supposed. That's to be a Scottish about. thing too. <laughs> There's yeah. one thing I've learned from Under the Kilt. It's, uh, <laughs> if you can... want more Scottish history, go listen to Under the Kilt with me and Adam. But enough about that. Uh, what <laughs> did you bring for us today? So what I did bring for you today is actually arguably American history. Um, so that's not obnoxious enough, you know, at all. Me coming to lecture you on how America works. <laughs> I mean, we weren't taught it correctly. So no. it's, I always said that I would prefer, I would have preferred to have studied American history, like, in the UK, be like, I just want to hear how you guys tell that the story of our breakup. <laughs> well, you know, the great thing about this topic is that nobody knows it correctly. And so it's the history of Hollywood. So I'm completely obsessed with the very, very like beginnings of um, the film industry. So I got into this and now I could just <clears throat> I'll, like fly off in 18,000 directions. So just like rein me in whenever you're like, oh, watch it, guys, it's dinner time. Um, <laughs> So I got interested in it because I was, uh, I spent much of the 90s in love with Robert Downey Jr. Like, obviously. Like you do. Um, I'm an old person. It's what we did in those days. Um, And so I watched the movie Chaplin. Now, Chaplin, I will talk about. I am no fan of, um, yeah, anyway, I'll get back to him. But what fascinated me about the film, because at that point, I must have been maybe 15 or 16 when I was watching it. And I was already kind of knowing that I maybe wanted to be like a screenwriter or a director or something like that. Uh, And I was already hearing, "Mm, there's not a lot of women do that. It's not that easy for women. It's not really an industry that's very welcoming to women. Um, And I was all like, well, I'll be the exception. Spoiler alert, I am not the exception. But anyway. (laughs) But you are exceptional. Thank you very much. Um, So as I was already, you know, being told this, you know, in like film clubs and, and classes and whatnot, there is in the, um, I don't know, first 10 minutes of Chaplin, Mabel Normand played by Marissa Tomei, um, and she is directing him. And I was like, hold on a minute, what what the what now? Um, and it just got me fascinated. And I started reading like about her. And then, you know, as the years went on, it just became this kind of obsession because what I discovered was that up until 1925, 
an average of 50% of all Hollywood releases were written by women. In, I think, 2017, it was 11%. Um, and there was almost 50% directors for almost um, as many of those years. Universal was like famous for its like army of lady directors, which I'm fascinated by Universal. I'll talk about that more in a sec. Um, the, like, the first studio head was a woman. The first star to sign a million dollar contract was a woman. Um, the inventor of integrated distribution, it's called, which isn't very interesting, but basically when they very first came up with the idea of movies, they basically treated them like plays. So they would film it and then they would physically take that one negative on a tour around various, it was like barns and sheets and stuff in those days. And then when they were done with it, they would just chuck it in the bin because now the, like, the run was, was over. So the person who kind of went, hold on a second, what if we ran off a few different copies and then we had, you know, like theatres who would invest in the films beforehand and basically everything that is distribution today was Mary Pickford, who was clearly a woman. New sponsor alert and a brief history lesson. Did y'all know that the use of hops as a staple ingredient in beer dates back to early drug laws in Bohemia? Before then, folks were blissfully brewing with whatever tasty botanicals they had on hand. Based in Madison, Wisconsin, Herbiary Brewing is bringing back the noble tradition of hopless brews. Learn more about their fermented folklore and where to find them at herbiary.com. That's H-E-R-B-I-E-R-Y.com. So it's this fascinating period. It was about, I'd say generously 20 years, probably more like 15 really, from the very, very beginning. So the first studio um, was opened in Hollywood in 1908. And I would say by the, the mid to late 20s, I tend to think it's with the creation of MGM. That merger happened in 24, 25, I think thereabouts. Um, and that's when it kind of started becoming like a big business. And then Wall Street started investing and Wall Street wanted to invest in movies made by men. So it was sort of like, yeah, 15 to 20 years. There was just like this glorious period in which movies were, were all about women. There's this great, so the, my Substack is called Fully 50-50. And the reason for that is there was an article um, in 1919 in Ladies Home Journal, the same magazine that's like still around today. Um, and this is a quote from it that says, within five years, the feminine influence in Hollywood will be fully 50-50. 1919, hundred years later, it's not even nearly oh, fully 50-50. No. Right, so um, it fascinates me because it's just this incredible period of like, free creativity from women and it's also maddening because you know any of us who work in the industry today you're constantly fighting against that like oh i lost out to that job and it was like a quite middle class guy that got it maybe maybe he's just more talented than me and then like it happens 10 times and you start thinking is is he or and you you know you're hearing constantly stories of you know someone selling a project to like a production company so they obviously believe in her and her idea and then they're like oh yeah but we need a we need a name showrunner and it's a white guy like again and again so it's just like this juxtaposition of how incredible it was then and how we pretend now like you know when you know all the sort of like me too and the, the wage gap in hollywood all of that started sort of kicking off like what maybe five years ago or something like that and there was all this talk as though film was just this inherently masculine thing that we're, we were going to have to try and change somehow. And I'm sitting there going, 
No, but it wasn't though. It wasn't though. We made it. Wasn't. That like, one. It was created like like the boom mic was invented by a female director. You wouldn't have a boom mic. Like the first like the first like two years of talkies. Sorry, I do like bang on. I will take a breath in a second. <laughs> I promise. But this is like how obsessed I am. For you should watch like the first maybe two years of of talking pictures. You can literally see actors like walk up to like a plant or something and be like, "I love you. Will you marry me?" <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of just like little little Timmy stagehand just like holding a mic up to him and and the female director's like, can you just throw that on a stick or something? You are in my shot. <laughs> and that's exactly what it was. They used to hide like little mics all around, you know, sets or, or yeah, have like um, they would hold them like subtly under a coat or something. Like <laughs> it was nuts. And then yeah, Dorothy Asner was like, This is bullshit. This is ridiculous. Why don't we put it on a stick? And then Groundbreaking idea. Put it on a stick. That's exactly. I, I had I remember reading at one point that there were a lot of female writers in the beginning of Hollywood. And it was I mean, it was completely foreign to me that idea. And it was a very recent semi discovery. And the article kind of pitched it as like, it was just almost just like an assembly line, we could get women to like, you know, write a bunch of stuff really quick and then the men would take over and I didn't realize that it was so female led not just they were this one piece of it and that it mm -hmm. was this like kind of just creative expression and not just using women for their words and then taking over and changing things yeah absolutely I mean I think it's fair to say that proportionately screenwriting was the most dominated by women like I don't know mm -hmm. if you could really say there was like 50 50 directors yeah. or producers but there were a lot of mm -hmm. um of really influential directors producers you know studio managers um distributors um film editors like that's one of my favorite things for the first like 20 years post-production was dominated by women and it was because it meant cutting physically like tiny frames from um from you know thousands of feet of film and so you needed to have like little fingers little like dexterous fingers and it was almost considered like needlework it was like delicate work for a woman and it's so frustrating because so that was so for such a long time it was dominated by women all the top they called them film clippers in those days they were all women um, now, for the same but opposite reason, cinematography became dominated by men because you needed like just big fuck off arms and shoulders to carry those cameras. They were huge. And also to hand crank them that like, you needed like a, the biceps of some of the early uh, cinematographers are just fascinating. And I once came across I was actually in L.A. and I went to the public library because like everyone else goes to LA and they go to like the beach or they go shopping or they go star spotting and I'm sitting there in the basement of the library going through like microfilm of newspapers from the 20s because that is how cool I am um so anyway I came across it and it was like an ad for a cameraman and it was honestly something like must have appropriate physique and I was like I beg your pardon were they like objectifying men <laughs> And then I realized because, because they had much, much longer um, takes and like shots in those days because you didn't have the kind of fast edit patterns for the most part. So one take could be the best part of a scene and he had to like crank and hold this camera completely steady and still. So it became dominated by men. <clears throat> and so often today we keep hearing and that's the reason that today cinematography is still dominated by men because it originally was. And I'm like, okay, so what about post-production then? What yeah. about screenwriting then? Because when women 
initially dominate something, it gets changed. Once you start having, you know, machines that you can like run film through and it, you can do it with like, you know, big man paws, then men immediately take over and mm. same with screenwriting. But cinematography, there's no reason that you couldn't have, you know, cameras are light these days. There's plenty of ways that you could be, you know, a tiny little delicate woman and carry a camera, but it's dominated by men because it, that's how it originally was. Yeah, I love the select the selectivity of that's how it's always been. It's like, but that only applies when mm. it's keeping keeping women down. Because editing is editing is very male dominated now. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because there is a marked difference some of the times when a man is filming versus when a woman is filming or a man is editing versus when a woman is editing you know the the male gaze they they shoot things differently and even in post-production like not just male and female Issa Rae's Insecure there was this huge write-up about how like her like lighting or cinematographer person is finally lighting black people correctly and and it's something that it's not taught and like makeup artists don't know how to do makeup for darker skin or black hair and it's getting someone else in the seat of what you need to be doing changes everything oh absolutely massa and that's exactly why you know I feel as I saw from the conversation about, you know, we need diversity in Hollywood, you know, it's pitched from the point of view as of fairness, of we need to give, you know, women a chance and people of color a chance. And it's like, no, 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 you need us. You are not telling the stories that you yeah, should be telling. You need to telling. get out of the way. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. exactly. Because that's another, like, that's a hugely important point. Again, if you look at pre-code, all pre-code films, but particularly the early silence, which were written and directed by women, you can tell that the story is from the female gaze. You know the way that there are so, like, it's something that drives me nuts. Like, these days, there are so many almost like archetypes of women that we pretend exist in real life. But actually, we've just grown up watching them on TV. And so many of them only, you know, like, you know, like the manic pixie dream girl mm. or, you know, like I always say, you can always tell when a man's written a script when the woman never, ever gets rejected. You know, she mm-hmm. never has like an unrequited crush or, you know, if she's single, she's batting off 25 different guys or whatever. And I'm like, that is how male screenwriters imagine the woman's experience is, right? And there's so many you know, um, examples of that. And in those early 20s films, which were written by women, you can see, and it's fascinating, there was like this whole trend of, they were called sex comedies. Now they weren't like sex graphically, but like, yeah, but romance. Gender comedies. Yeah, more or less. And so there was this particular series of them directed by Cecil B. DeMille, as in like Sunset Boulevard, um, starring Gloria Swanson, as in Sunset Boulevard, but it was almost like the real version of Sunset Boulevard. I think there was five of them, something like that. It was like kind of the series. And it was basically the sex in the city of the teens. And it was they were written by women, actually a Scottish woman called Jenny McPherson. And you can just tell how after the Second World War, that was kind of like when dating, as like the modern idea of dating was invented. Like until then, you were courted by your future husband. And probably your parents had something to do with it. And you didn't have, you know, a great deal of say in the matter. But after the First World War, there was this whole idea that maybe our soulmates had died in the the trenches either literally the man the boy next door you thought you were going to marry or just like generally the idea 
and also contraception became available like on you know over the counter for the first time you had a sort of like early version of a diaphragm and condoms available in the early 20s so all of a sudden women were like oh now I can date. I don't have to get married. I don't have to worry about pregnancy. I can. So it was like this big cultural revolution, this idea that, you know, women might actually want to have a, a, a say in um, who they dated and who they had sex with. So anyway, there's this, um, this series and it fascinates me because it's like sex in the city, but it's better because it's written by a woman and you can just see how they're exploring this. So basically it's Gloria Swanson um, and she plays different characters, but it's sort of a continuation as well. And it's kind of her deciding, do I really want to be married to this guy? Like he doesn't interest me anymore. And they sort of, I think they split up in one of them and then they get back together and so on. And you can just see this like awakening of the idea that women might question whether or not you want to be married or want to be married to this guy or, you know, like whatever it is in a way that we don't see that on screen anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's, and those also, so there's another film that I'm obsessed with, 1916, so the middle of the First World War, there was a film made by a female writer-director called Lois Weber, who I'm like, I love her, and it was about abortion. Uh, it basically came down on the side of, um, it's hard to call it pro-choice by 21st century standards exactly, but it definitely did explore the idea that women might not want to just be like baby factories mm. and it kind of is a little bit judgy because basically there's like three different stories i think there's this idea that poor women should have access to birth control which in 1916 meant abortion basically because there was like sort of like a tragic story that if you can't you know feed the child and it might die and that's that's awful and we should help people not to do that and then there's a second storyline which is it's tricky I've, I've watched it and I see it as rape. Um, I've seen other people like describe this film and they call it a seduction. So it's one of these things, again, it's like the eyes in, in the beholder. Yeah. But it's like a young girl is taken advantage of by this young guy. She gets pregnant um, and the woman, older woman in her life take her to the, the doctor and she ends up, um, she's, she's killed by that doctor and then he's in court and that's kind of what the rest of the movie is about. And then um, the wife of the lawyer who tries this case, he then finds out that she's been like having abortions all this time. He's been like desperately hoping, will will our family start this month yeah. or next month or whatever? And um, he doesn't know why. And it, the, the doctor um, it reveals to him like a sort of uh, revenge when he is found guilty. So anyway, for a storyline for 1916 is, you know, and again, it's like there's sort of eugenics, which isn't great. And it's definitely in some ways you can tell it's more than 100 years old. But I think the sheer fact that it is written and directed and produced by a woman, the, the modernness and the like the relatability of some of the ideas, you wouldn't get that in a, in a mainstream film today. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the sheer autonomy of the woman you wouldn't even get, like, regardless of the of like the sexual content or the abortion content. Well, exactly. Like, the whole idea that he's sort of just, you know, wishing and hoping every month it might turn out that she's pregnant. Like, you just see how it's not his choice. He's, you know, obviously doing his bit, which is another thing, too. Like, when you compare that to, you know, the 50s, when you saw married couples in, like, twin beds... You know, it's clear, you know, you're not seeing anything or anything, but it's quite clear this couple are sleeping together because he is expecting her to be pregnant. And again, that for more than 100 years ago, you would still struggle to see that in some in some mainstream films. 
I don't think people realize how movies back then were not as prude. And it wasn't until, like you were talking about pre-code, it wasn't until the, whatever the code, there's a name for the code. Motion production code. Motion production code. I like calling it the code. Code, yeah. Sounds more intense. But they were talking about abortion. They were talking about sex and sexual assault and like kind of really heavy things. And then that happened where now we can't show men and women in the same bed. And it's funny how you mention like the implied sex. Oh, (laughs) well, the implied sex and funny ways that they got around uh, showing sex or insinuating sex. But those Move, like things in the movies aren't real and they're not showing real life people actually started buying twin beds for their like couples because they were seeing it in movies and like no that's that's not real like we're doing that because we're legally required to yeah i had by... a whole conversation with a friend last week about this because he was like because he, he said i say bring back separate bedrooms for couples or at least like separate beds and i was like separate bedrooms yes that was a thing yeah like ages ago I'm like this I was like I wasn't sure but I could I I was I was like I'm not 100% sure that the separate beds in the same room thing it which came first it on screen or if it was okay some couples do that actually IRL and then also then the screen thing perpetuated it and I was like I'm pretty sure that that's mostly a Hollywood construct yeah. I mean, I think logically it makes sense that it would be. They didn't have central heating at this point. If you could even just use a man as a hot water bottle, like why would <laughs> That's literally what I said. I was like, I could never do that. I was like, I don't know that I could ever do that because I would freeze. <laughs> I'm such a cold person. That, that like... is part of the reason that unmarried couples did sleep together like throughout history because you just needed body warmth. The entire families would sleep in one bed. So it makes no logical sense that you'd be like, hi, I'm over here. Yeah. You know, when all that, bo- like, men are boiling hot. That's the whole point of them. Like, why was- <laughs> Charlie <laughs> from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory's grandparents, <laughs> all four of them shared one bed. So you exactly. mean to tell me that you expect couples to sleep in separate beds? <laughs> exactly. And that is, I think, a huge part of, like, where, it, you know, it drives me nuts. And, it, and it, the, the passion kind of, like, comes from is because... That is such an important point. Like the whole idea that a spinster is somebody to be like pitied, I would say like 80% of that comes from the code. Up until, um, you know, like, threat has, like obviously it would be a problem if you were unmarried back in the days where you, it meant you were owned by your dad. Like you were either owned by your dad, you were owned by your husband, like you could choose, which, which was it. But generally speaking, it meant a spinster was a woman who could own property and who could own, um, who could earn her own living. And there was, you know, she was maybe like, separate to society in some ways but generally had like quite a lot of respect and certainly in the 20s there was like this fascination for this whole you know new army of career women because with the the industrial revolution and with the beginnings of like office jobs and stuff again it was stuff that women could physically do and all of a sudden there was no reason for them not to do it you could work you could run a you know factory machine every bit as well as a man could and off the heels of off the heels of the first world war like Every exactly. major economy realized that they needed to rely on their women again. They needed to like let allow them to be the breadwinners. 
Exactly. So there was this, like there was the like the vamps with a whole genre, which is is brilliant. But just gently, there was this whole um, trend for gold digger movies, which I kind of love, and they were considered really feminist. Um, the reason being, they were a bit like, you know what? If men are going to you know buy me furs and whatever, and the off chance of getting to see my boobs, then I might as well give them a shopping list. Um, and this was kind of this idea of like playing men at their own game and having like your own sort of autonomy and independence and hobbies and passions and life and all this kind of thing was huge in the, in the 20s and you see that in so many silent films and then the code came along and what i think a lot of people don't realize is the code was written by a devout catholic there was this great quotation i think it was like time magazine or you know one of that kind of magazines that says something like the code was now jewish hollywood selling catholic morality to protestant america <laughs> and that's kind of and you can kind of you can see that that's where you get femme fatales from because all of a sudden female characters became madonnas or whores there was no two ways about that and it actually was written in that marriage had to be the like goal of every romantic relationship that is why even today in a mainstream hollywood film it is really rare to see a woman get a happy ever after that does not include a heterosexual monogamous relationship mm. like even if the whole movie is about her maybe leaving an abusive relationship she has to find a new guy before the end because you can't have a, a woman left on her own like then it'll just be anarchy yeah. and yeah. so much of that was created by the code and then it seeps into our culture and we all start believing that it's true and that it's a thing and then you have you know this like pressure throughout the 50s and then it kind of got worse in the 60s with the sexual revolution when the pill came out basically speaking women get freer the more contraception there is like you can just sort of like chart that throughout it turns out funnily enough <laughs> it's funny you say the 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 goal always had to be like uh, marriage goal was marriage heterosexual relationship there was that christmas movie that came out last year with chris and stewart mm -hmm. which was like billed as kind of like a lesbian Christmas comedy, you know, like it's gonna be heartwarming and whatnot. And it was so progressive because it was just like a, a rom-com <laughs> about two women, but the end was horrible. Like she didn't get the like, yeah, the happy ever after with the couple. Like we still, you know, we'll throw some gays in there, but they can't not, be happy in the, the end. Gays There's gotta be some to toxicity. Yeah, the gays don't have exactly. to follow the code. Can't you just give us a, well, a Fucking yeah. happy ending. <laughs> I I love Kristen Stewart, but that movie also was entirely basically about outing someone that you love, uh, and yeah. also. But it is funny that like so she doesn't get spoiler alerts, guys. She like she we we don't get the cinematic ending, and then a lot of reviews were m mad that she doesn't end up with Aubrey Plaza's character, and I was like, but how much of that is just that you think she needs to end mm -hmm. up with someone? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, exactly, because this stuff, it, it's insidious. And then it becomes this like sort of abstract moral thing that you all need to get this happy ever after. We all talk about, oh, I want my Hollywood happy ever after. And you're like, you realize that the guy who came up with the Hollywood ever happy ever after failed at being a priest. And so he tried to like just give Catholic morality to the entire Western world through the mediums of movies instead. Because, you know, what? and I don't actually think this was the very first by any means lesbian kiss in a mainstream Hollywood film. Greta Garbo, in, um, who was bisexual in, in real life, um, and she produced a film called Queen Christina, which I am obsessed with. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. 
Um, so she plays this, um, well, in real life, Queen Cricket was probably what we might consider like non-binary or possibly even intersex in some way. Obviously, she lived in the 1600s, so we don't really know. Um, but um, Garbo played her as this, I guess, more of like a tomboy, essentially, who you know rejected the gender roles of, of a queen, dressed up as a boy all the time. And she, in reality, was possibly having an affair with her lady-in-waiting, Ebba von, von somebody or other. And in the film, you have this Ebba coming to Greta Garbo's character and saying, like, I can't see you anymore because I'm getting married. And she's, like, it's, it's, there's no two ways about the fact that Garbo is, is getting dumped and she's jealous and she's mad. And then she sort of, like, kisses her to say goodbye. You know, it's not like a, you know, there's no tongues or anything. But it's clearly, like, a kiss on the lips. It's a real kiss. So then she dresses up as a boy and she goes out riding in, in her kingdom. And it's hilarious because it's supposed to be Stockholm, obviously. And there's, like palm trees in LA in the background. It's like sunny we're... sunny Stockholm exactly the mountains of Stockholm there are no mountains in like all of Sweden um and then so she ends up in this like tavern and they get snowed in and this envoy is there too and he's this Spanish ambassador who is like on his way to basically it's like a really slow motion tinder he's bringing a portrait of his <laughs> boss the king to be like swipe right like what do you think because there's this great scene sorry i'm jumping around a little bit because i'm just you have to watch this movie i think it i'm sure it'll be on like amazon prime or something it's it's great um so yes yeah, so he's bringing her so this is early scene just before this with her like chancellor this guy called um oxen oxen and he's kind of going well could you marry maybe this prince of germany and this is when she's just been dumped by by ebba so she's all gutted and she's like no i don't like him oh well then could you marry the I don't know, Lord Flippity Flip. And she's like, no. And he said, this is my one of my all-time favorite lines of dialogue. He says, but your majesty, you cannot die an old maid. And she says, I have no intention to, Chancellor. I shall die a bachelor. <gasps> right? That's, that's amazing. 1932. Um, so then uh. she goes out into this tavern. And this is great. So they get all kind of like snowed in. The, the envoy's there. Of course, he doesn't know that she's the queen. And there's this great thing where... Um, all the like guys in the tavern are like almost coming to blows because they're taking bets on how many lovers the queen has had this year. And is it like eight or is it 10? And half the guys are like, she's slept with eight. And then the other half are like, she's slept with 10. And then they turn to her and they're like, boy, you, you know, be the like um, tiebreaker. How many? And she says, what about an even dozen? And they all like toast her. So then... Um, so they're snowed in and they ha there's only one room left at the inn, of course. But because Love that trope. Love that <laughs> And I stop, think this may be like the original. in separate beds because that trope is, that trope is chef's kiss. One well, bed they, trope. Exactly. And, this, and it, they have to share because they think he's, it's, he's a young boy. So they're like, there's no reason that you can't share this double bed that's like a... Um, like four poster kind of bed and she's like oh yeah that's right because I am a boy so they go up to the room and she starts getting undressed and it's this awesome thing where she like undoes her this sort of waistcoat thing she's wearing and presumably I guess we're supposed to think like her boobs come out or something because he's a bit like whoa you're a woman and she's like surprise <laughs> um and then the, like cut to this um four poster bed with the curtains shut so we don't see anything but there's no two ways about what's happening behind the curtains, right? And there's this great bit where his, um, like, butler guy, I don't know, like, servant comes in to offer him a drink, 
realizes that he's clearly in bed with this young boy and you kind of see in his face like oh my boss is gay oh well okay do you guys want hot chocolate and he leaves <laughs> And this is, so I, well, I mean, I could tell you the entire film and I won't, but it is just like when you think of what the code killed off, I think that movie is one of the greatest examples of it. Because she also ends up, it's a bit of a spoiler, but it's a hundred year old movie. So it's, um, <laughs> it's on you for not seeing it. Fair. Exactly. Fair you, you've had a century to watch it. So, <laughs> so basically they get together. She, he finds out that she's the queen. She abdicates the throne to like leave him for love. And then because he's a man and he's a moron, he goes and gets himself killed in a duel when he's like on his way to um, to meet her. And you see how she has this moment of kind of going, oh shit, I, I don't, I, I'm not abdicating for love anymore. Like he's dead. Do I go home? Do I just go back to how it was? And then she's like, no, fuck it. And she gets on the ship and she just sails off by herself. And it is just like, honestly, I get goosebumps thinking about this shot. I mean, it's just Garbo's, beauty in the um just the ultimate use of it and it's that this is what's really the movie called queen christina queen christina Gotta it's add a really, it to our if movie you were list. to google it you'll probably see that final shot of her and you see there's like the wind and he just like pans in really really slowly into i think it's like her eyes it shuts and you just see her looking into the future like fuck <laughs> And that's it. And to me, it's just like the ultimate pre-code film. And it just tells us everything that the code ruined for us. Because again, you would still not get all of that in one yeah. mainstream. At least not without it being like, Garbo kisses a woman. And then yeah. guess what? Wacky hijinks. They think they're gay, but they're not. And yeah. they're like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, it's just people being people. She just loves her and then she loves him and then she loves herself and that's why she abdicates the throne and it's like I don't think we have had a story that's as much about a woman choosing herself in the hundred years since and that is so depressing. Natalie there comes a time in every episode where I need to talk to you about Iowa. Wait is this a new segment? No, it's an ad for our sponsor, Raygun, who I love for being a wonderful business and for providing me with a regular excuse to bring up Iowa. As if you needed one. <laughs> right. Raygun is the greatest store in the universe, hands down. They're headquartered in the greatest state in the universe. Okay, okay. They also have other locations, including one in the best city in the universe, in Chicago. True. I guess you could say Raygun brings us together. Raygun kind of brings everyone together. True again. From home goods and paper products to their signature apparel, Raygun is all about good vibes, great laughs, and kind of just not being a shitty person. Yup. And they regularly collaborate with charities and special causes on special runs of products, and 15 to 30% of their net profits go to a variety of nonprofit organizations every year. And they sponsor this really dope history podcast I love. Right? So don't be a shitty person. Check them out at their stores across the Midwest or online at raygunsite.com. Use promo code SHARIALATER to save on your next order. I feel like if they made that movie in like the early aughts, first of all, Garbo would be played by... Uh, Kate Hudson. Uh, Oh, I, I was going to say Kira Knightley, but also potentially Kate Hudson. Oh, God. Give me I'm, Kate Hudson and Matthew McConaughey. And, uh, sorry, side tangent. Google, like my Google News thing fed me a listicle the other day that was like a list of 
cast this would speak to you on a very real level. It was basically a listicle of like, if you loved the 2005 uh, uh, Pride and Prejudice, here are some other movies that you could watch. And so most of them are just other like Jane Austen or like Bronte I'm need films. You to send me that list. You've seen everything <laughs> on this list, but I want to point out that it was a list of maybe ten movies, and Kira Knightley was the lead <laughs> in at least five of them. Oh my god! Uh, and it made me laugh, but. Like, if they made this in, like, 2005, I feel like they would have, like you said, played up, uh, like, some of the antics more. It would have been damn near a farce. Mm -hmm. Or, like, even more, even if it was, like, let's say, like, the 60s or 70s, it would have been way, the romance, it wouldn't have been as romantic. It wouldn't have been as independent. It would have Mm -hmm. been, like, wacky hijinks. They would have had to make it farcical in order to get some of the things Oh, absolutely. Or she would have had to end up with another guy at the end. He would have just had to appear at the last minute and be like, yes, don't worry, I can save you into... I kind of miss the heyday of... The heyday of the rom-com when it was at its height, you know, when you're getting, like, Notting Hill, when you're getting, like, how to lose a guy in 10 days or whatever. And yes, there's a lot of... I love you, but never put both of those movies on the same pedestal. Yeah, I know. I'm just thinking of like rom coms, but you're just we, like, the, basically. I'm thinking the era. I'm thinking the era. We've lost rom-com. the farce. Like there is no today equivalent of a farce, and if there is, it's like Seth Rogen trying to get high. The and stoner hang- comedy kind of ruined the farce. Mm-hmm. It took over for the farce, and which even is hilarious because a stoner anymore. comedy can never be as fast paced as a farce <laughs> literally like it literally can't do mm-hmm. no and and if yeah if you look at like rom-coms of like the late 90s you know like people you know shit on rom-coms all the time because they suck now they do mm-hmm. they're corny they're not well acted like we don't have hair when harry met sally we don't have sleepless in seattle Notting hill like those are good rom-coms and mm-hmm. yes it was point was for it to be kind of gender-based but you could get some of that comedy and that fun romanticism that's not like your life is over if whatever i don't know i they have lost the levity and that being okay and i'm not saying that rom-coms are not without fault but but they don't have to be like they are because of the films that are coming out yeah but because like if you want to like the the greatest rom-com of actually no there's two great rom-coms like of all time as far as I'm concerned uh, and they're two of the greatest films of all time and if you neither of you have seen them I might have to just like hang up right now because so one is His Girl Friday which was made in I think 1932 Cary Grant and uh, Rosalind Russell and it's just delicious and it's delicious a because they're on a level like I think that's a big part of the problem with rom-coms that we have today it's like one of them has to be right and one of them is like being fixed to deserve mm-hmm. that one but the real rom-coms work when it is two people who need each other but also don't but also do because that's what being in love is all about like it's not i'm broken and once i get myself fixed then i will deserve you it's like if that was the case literally nobody would be in a relationship in like mm-hmm. all of humanity yeah it should be I'm broken in a way that you help me to fix and I can also do it myself. And so I think that equality, but also what I love about it is that it's dark as well. Like there's a man being um, there's a, an, on death row 
And that's what the whole thing is about, which again, you wouldn't get today because it'd be like, but it's a rom-com. It's meant to be light and fluffy. And it's like, no, no, people fall in love in prisons. People fall in love while they are trying to save somebody from death row. Like that is sexy. That is fun. Mm -hmm. That is. And then the other one is the apartment with the main reason I'm single because Jack Lemmon is dead um, and <laughs> Jeremy Clean, because there's just no point. Jack Lemmon is dead. Gary Cooper is dead. There's no, there's no point um, to dating like at all. Um, but that's also dark. She attempts suicide in it. And people kind of forget that because they go, oh, look, it's a Christmas movie and they fall in love. But it's dark and it's real. And she is so flawed and deep and fascinating. And of course, both of those films were made under the comb, but actually His Girl Friday is based on a pre-code film. It's like a remake. Um, and even that was based on a Broadway play and it's called The Front Page. And the pre-code version of it isn't actually great, but you can see how like the seeds of equality help the remake that was made under the code, I think. This is another qualm I have. Re we should only be remaking bad movies or movies that like, could have been better, but missed the mark. Missed the mark. There's the seeds of it. Why would you remake an amazing movie? It's it's never going to be as good. It's just that nostalgia. You end up like anytime you watch the original, you're like, oh, this other one, you know, it's tainted by that. Where some of the best movies were remakes or kind of let's take this idea that was cool but it was a bad movie or this movie that was good but it didn't really get its fair shake or it's like, been a very long amount of time and we're doing something pretty damn different mm -hmm. with it because yes. for example when you bring up his girlfriend in the apartment i i was thinking uh shop around the corner and, and you've got mail and you've got mail as a remake of shop around the corner they're very different movies though like they're yeah oh absolutely well and that was based off uh she loves me the broadway yeah. play mm -hmm. yeah and it, or if you like update because i didn't it wasn't amazing but i i appreciate what they were trying to do when they remade um guess who's coming to dinner the spencer mm -hmm. tracy movie and sydney poitier with um ashton kutcher and they switched the races around mm -hmm. and it was like well okay now that's that's interesting because you can you can put some of now and how our you know values yeah. and racism has hopefully improved or, or mm -hmm. progressed mm -hmm. in that time yeah. that's and i remember thinking you know the remake of the stepford wives with um nicole kidman and i'm like mm -hmm. I would be so much more interested in that if it had been the other way around. If it had been a bunch of like independent career women and their like himbo, like Jimbo yeah. Yeah. boyfriends or partners, which I think is more typical. Like I know so many yeah. women that are like carrying <laughs> these dudes. Yeah. Because almost... Joseph Breen told them they needed a man, but that's it, another. <laughs> it's almost like you can't attach rules uh or a code to the to any of this for mm -hmm. example uh it's almost like you should tell the most compelling story and if there's a reason to do the remake and the reason is like because we want to tell the story this way now so it is derived mm -hmm. from x but we're doing this mm -hmm. thing like that 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 is a reason to do that versus because cast by by your rule the remake of She's All That sh should be permissible because She's All That was fine, yeah. but it wasn't like it wasn't the, great. It wasn't mm -hmm. amazing. So no. I at Wait, first I was she's like, oh, all that. 
They made they remade they, She's All That. They made He's All That on Netflix. It came out. Oh yeah, I heard about that. And it's like She's All That of that uh, generation of teen rom com mm-hmm. was. It was literally a laundry list of tropes. <laughs> but if you tried to remake uh, 10 Things I Hate About You, for example, like I would fight I, you. Be, I would burn things down. Yeah. The only good, the only two recent rom-coms I can think of that aren't also like holiday movies uh, that are good. One is uh, To All the Boys of Love Before. Mm-hmm. And that was like, they it's a fucking love letter to teen rom-coms. So mm-hmm. it, and so it is kind of its own genre because it's a high school rom-com, if you will. Um, and you can make an argument for crazy rich Asians being yeah. a, a rom like a Oh, rom-com. 100%. Yeah. I think that uh, kind of is the closest thing to like what we think of as like a good rom-com, but there still is that kind of, equality between them even though they're mm-hmm. you know there's the financial you know mm-hmm. difference between them but they're i don't know i was really just pleasantly surprised when i watched that because i was like i had never read the book and i was like oh my god this is like a true rom-com it's also just like mm-hmm. the though the just like the stigma of of rom-coms as being women stories for women they're women mm-hmm. they're lady fluff stories versus yes. going back to Claire, your in- entire obsession <laughs> and story <laughs> with old Hollywood being there, there, they were stories, they were largely stories written by women, but they weren't mm-hmm. all just, they weren't fluffy, what we would consider like fluffy female driven stories. Yeah. Like, they were well, just exactly. real stories mm-hmm. that happened to, that were very good and, and had well rounded, well written female characters because they were written by females. Yeah. <laughs> I feel and like I need to amend a statement quick. I I don't think of those movies as rom-coms because people tell us so much that they're not rom-coms. So when I've been saying rom-coms, I've been talking about like oh, no, 90s saying, and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no, no. I just, I feel like I'm doing disservice by saying like the ideal rom-com when I'm thinking of like mid-90s. But the perfect rom-com is, yes, these pre-code female driven or or written by with that equality between them and i hate that that vernacular has been kind of taken away from that of rom-com oh and it's been taken away partly i think because of what you just said natalie that it's women's films have become this weird subgenre, which it was nothing like that for i mean even after the code i, I would say it was maybe to be honest, I think possibly the 80s, it was kind of like Star Wars and then like all the Spielberg films and all of a sudden we got this idea of, or maybe the 70s with like The Godfather and all that, those kinds of films. You started to kind of get this idea, but like Kramer versus Kramer, that's not a chick flick. You know, men would go and see that. That is, you know, that's, and not to say that men should go and see any films with um, with women in them, but for so many decades, we didn't have this idea of there was movies and there was women's movies. It yeah. was like women were people that had stories as well. And But I do think that the code had a lot to do with that because, because of the Catholic ideology, women stopped being individual humans who maybe some of them like you know wanted to get married and have babies and others didn't and others were on the fence and others had different hopes and dreams and whatever. You know, in in most of the Abrahamic religions, women are 
there to have babies and they're there to support men and the man's the head of the house and da da da. And all of that has kind of seeped into movies. And I think because it was at such an early point of talkies, that's also when, you know, screenplay structure was becoming established. Until, you know, in the twenties, it's more like a play. There's maybe a kind of beginning, middle and end ish. But none of the rules that we have today, which is, you know, there's an inciting incident, 20 minutes in, and then there's a turning point here. And so we have now generations and generations of screenwriters who've been taught this screenplay structure that no movie is complete without, without realizing that it falls into this, like, character gets tempted, character redeems their sins, character gets reward in heaven. Like, it's, it's Catholic ideology. It, yeah, it falls into through. a parable format. <laughs> exactly. And it didn't need to. And that's where you do, you end up with this, you have to tack on a happy ever after, and it has to be this, like, you know, mainstream, heteronormative, you know, conservative-type happy ever after, because you need that value change to fit the screenplay structure to feel like you've written a movie. And it's just all something that some guy made up and then manipulated his way into basically what he did. So because of the, so in 1918, it was this Supreme Court um, declared that films were not an art form, they were a business. So as such, they're actually not technically subject to the First Amendment because they're not art, they're business which is interesting. However, because the First Amendment um, exists, it's really difficult to censor anything, practically speaking, in America, which is arguably as it should be. So even when the code sort of like came down, nobody ever said you weren't allowed to make certain films. You just couldn't distribute them. Mm -hmm. For several decades, up until there was this big antitrust case in, I think, the 60s, I'd have to double check that. But for a good like three, four decades, basically there was this monopoly and there was just one big movie theater chain that was all over America and no film could get distributed in those theaters without Joseph Breen approving of it. So that's kind of like how the um, then the code started to fall apart once this antitrust case happened and then you started getting independent cinemas and they were like, oh, we could show things with some sex in them or some violence or because of course there was that whole other side of things as well that you also couldn't show like crime paying um and there was an article that came out again around the time that pointed out that under the code you couldn't make a film about the boston tea party because it was against the law that was a crime at that point it was a a crime against the british government Mm -hmm. so technically you would have had to have punished the founding fathers and sent them to jail in order to make a film about the American Revolution under the code. Oh my gosh. Right? And so, of course, no one made that film because God forbid we... Exactly. (laughs) We never... It would be an interesting film, right? Oh, yeah. And and old Hollywood also really didn't care for any movies about... uprisings in Rome. We didn't we definitely didn't oh, make no. movies about uh about, you know, um uh, Roman Roman slaves having an uprising because that would have been against the code because that would be technically not following the law either. Exactly. We would never do that. I um I want to I want to call back real quick two past episodes that I of of shared history that I've been thinking of this entire time. One uh uh, I believe episode 19, we talk about Francis Marion, friend of Mary Pickford, mm-hmm. and a uh, fabulous female screenwriter. 
and then just because we were talking about kind of the development of the stigma of uh, this movie is for women only, it just made me think of how that was like literally Lifetime Movie Network's <laughs> tagline for movies for women. Movies for women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's so if you want to hear a whole lot of the history of made for TV movies, listeners, and you haven't already, I think it's episode like 35 with Patrick Serrano from uh, Lifetime Uncorked. Because I feel like Lifetime definitely didn't help the stigma of women-driven movies. It's like, oh, this is what that means? Mm-hmm. Hard pass. <laughs> Only the godfather and die hard for me, please. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. You might have heard this in your episode about Frances Marion, but I just have to jump in with my favorite quotation from Frances Marion, like one of the many, many reasons that just I love her. Um, she once said that she spent her entire life looking for a man that she could look up to without lying down. <laughs> I love that. Right. This so is she was amazing. a top. Yeah, so that's what we're saying. <laughs> <Right. Yeah. laughs> she did a lot of cowboys, which would, yeah. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I, will, I, I feel like on that note, uh, we can steer ourselves to... <laughs> To a closing, we can we can rope this bad boy in. Uh, I want to ask Claire, since I know that you love, I'm going to give you a couple, and also this is kind of a cheat code because I happen to know that you've written a pilot about Greta Garbo. But I would love to hear your dream casting with uh, current actors, current celebrities for uh, if for who you would cast maybe as Greta Garbo, who you would cast as uh francis marion because we all love francis and um ooh, let's do joseph breen oh oh that's good i like um okay so greta garbo i think probably um because i think she it would have to be an actual swedish actress because so she, she like she's, she's just so swedish, swedish. she's so <laughs> swedish like from every poor she is swedish um and i think i'd really have to go with rebecca ferguson um who, oh good you know who rebecca ferguson is she's a lot of people don't know she's swedish and she's amazing and i think she looks really like like garbo and i think she would be incredible and francis marion let's have a thing do you know who i if you don't she would probably be my first choice for Mary Pickford, but I think she'd be incredible as Frances Marion as well, would be Reese Witherspoon. I actually have oh. a theory. I think that Reese Witherspoon may be Mary Pickford reincarnated. Oh. Because, right? She is her. She is a producer. She is, she's she's famous for playing quite like girly feminist, feminine roles as, like Mary Pickford would have been amazing in Legally Blonde. Like it would have been, yeah. it's, it's exactly the kind of films that she made. I purposely didn't give you Mary Pickford just because I was like, I'm not going to give you all characters from your pilot. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know that she's in, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think that, and it's something that, I, yeah, it fascinates me. And I love that there's now this new generation, I think spearheaded probably by um, Reese Witherspoon of of these actress entrepreneurs that are mm-hmm. kind of like creating. I would love to know if... She must know about Mary Pickford. Like she, she's got. She it. has to, right? I don't know. I need. I'll to. give her a call later, and I'll call be and like, find Reese, because I'm like, I need to go for cocktails with Reese Witherspoon. I need to talk to her about um, about Mary Pickford. Now, Joseph Bree is kind of tough for, as you know, he's in that pilot, um, and so I have given it a lot 
of thought. And okay, so if I wasn't actually casting this, because for obvious reasons, I do not want this man to work, but that's also the same reason that I think Joseph Breen, I mean, I haven't sort of said much about him other than the fact that he is evil, um, that he's Catholic, but yeah, he is. He's, like, I, he's, I, he's our code boy. Yeah. So he's the guy who came up with the, the code, arbiter of the code. failed um, priest, and then he um, created the code you know, manipulated um, and like span his way into um, into power was a um, was an anti-Semite. Like this, the letters that he has written, he was in touch with Joseph Goebbels in Germany, being a bit like, you guys are doing anti-Semitism. Well, how could I maybe, you know, bring that to America? Like literally this was, this is the man who has now dominated films for almost a hundred years. He's horrendous. And for Very that- Very likable. Yeah. <laughs> He's a, but but like charming because he had that sort of like, um, you know, George W. Bush kind of, you know, Irish immigrant down home sort of people liked him. I think he'd be fun to go for a beer with. But he was possibly one of the most horrendous Americans, I think, to ever live. And for that reason, I would cast Kevin Spacey. I was good. The second he was like, I obviously don't want this man to work. I was like, oh, I know where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling. Uh, so I, I just Googled a picture of him and I'm like, what about like Martin Sheen? If ooh. we want to give someone work. Yeah. Like, obviously Kevin Spacey would be like. Yeah. I mean, he would just embody the character yeah. in this same kind of. Because also I think that you know, his character in House of Cards has a lot of Joseph Breen-esque mm. qualities. Yep. Not least because nobody's heard of Joseph Breen. We all talk, if you've heard of the code at all, people call it the Hayes Code. But Hayes was, comparatively speaking, he was more, we'd probably consider him to like a libertarian, like him, he was personally conservative, but he sort of believed in the First Amendment over and above everything else. So he was kind of like, how can we make this work where we can like spin what's actually happening in Hollywood in a way that makes it palatable for like the Bible Belt, basically. Um, Oh, I have so much more to say. I'm just realizing this is like, I don't even know what time it is anymore. Um, but the sheer fact that Breen took his job, took his office, took his code, made it way more evil than it ever had been and just stuck to the shadows. So hardly anyone has heard of Breen anymore. I just think that it, that just, he's, oh, he's a bad man. Yeah. Uh, I love all, of, I love all of these casting decisions, even though I too, uh, would love it if Kevin Spacey never worked again. Are there? We've we've talked about your Substack. Is there anything else? To plug plug away, my friend. Well, I think. Well, I guess. Yeah, the thing I'm most excited about at the moment is my Substack, which is fully fifty fifty. I think dot Substack dot com, um, and it is a weekly newsletter about exactly this. Um, I've. I think most. Posts will be um, zeroing in on one of these women who are working in those in in the time and like how they were able to work in the way that they did and why we couldn't do it now because they don't let us anymore. <laughs> um, and and also examining there is this. I mean, we could do an entire episode just in this case itself. There was um, a a rape and murder case um, from uh, September nineteen twenty one, Labor Day nineteen twenty one. Um, so almost exactly a hundred years ago. Um, one of the, the biggest, most famous actors at the time, like he just signed this million dollar contract to Paramount, which was probably $10 million in today's money, um, threw a party to celebrate in San Francisco at the party. A young actress took ill at some point. They were alone in a hotel room. 
it's disputed whether they were there for like 20 minutes or two minutes but they were alone in a hotel room at some point she took ill and three days later she she died um and her friends accused him of some kind of sexual assault which resulted and she died of a um a ruptured bladder um and the the accusation was that it had um, been caused by him in some way and he was he was tried three times in the end so very often today people are like oh sorry his name uh, arbuckle um uh, roscoe Ar arbuckle um and he was acquitted ultimately and so so many people are like he was the you know he was innocent and he still lost his career and he's we need to make sure that never happens again and i'm I, I am certain that that's one of the reasons that today we give these guys you know more and more chances because we don't want another arbuckle we don't want another innocent man lose his career but he was acquitted on the third trial the first two were hung juries um, which means he was kind of acquitted. It's a little bit like if someone technically wins the college vote but loses the popular vote by like a record-breaking amount. It's not a, like technically legally he has to be president, but it's not exactly a resounding. This of course has victory. never happened ever <laughs> no, in the history like, of our time. Theoretically, such yes. a horrifying <laughs> thing was ever like to happen. It was kind of like that. So almost fifty percent of the three juries that tried him thought there was a pretty good chance he may have done it like you know what I mean so mm -hmm. he, he was acquitted and also Gloria Swanson who we love and we could also talk about her all day long um said afterwards I know that Arbuckle was acquitted and I know that Al Capone was only guilty of tax evasion so in the <laughs> 20s people were like he got away with it yeah yeah and then so this is something that I'm kind of like going into because from the 60s onwards all of a sudden the narratives shifted to this like innocent fall guy, you know, malicious false accusations. And then like uh, the, the actress that's happened to Virginia Rappe, her career, all of a sudden she had like every venereal disease under the sun and she'd had 25 abortions and all this stuff, which A, none of that would stop her being a, a victim of rape, even if it was all true. And B, it is so unsubstantiated um not least because most of these stories came out 40 years after she died mm. and so people today are all like oh you know this this innocent dude and so i'm as part of the the series i'm trying to re-examine what we knew when and who believed what and why and it's fun i love it um and and i think it's i think it's important to do like i think you know as i say it's so easy for this truism that filmmaking is inherently masculine and it's just male dominated and that's just how it is and we'll just have to break off little chunks for the girls to play with for fairness mm -hmm. you know that is even now even you know more than five years after me too people still kind of think that way and i think it is so important to get this idea out that that is bullshit that was deliberately created by a misogynistic man who was hitler's pen pal so Ugh. let's not let's not listen to what he says anymore yeah. how about? <laughs> that's a nice little bow to tie everything <laughs> it's a really tie joseph breen up into uh mm -hmm. i i've been enjoying it's like a fun it's like a fun little history treat in your inbox every week uh from the Substack. so i've been enjoying it immensely i highly recommend everyone check it out um, I've just basically become a huge Claire fan girl because I also thoroughly enjoyed uh, Before Again and then got angry at the end because I was like, I knew it was coming. You write series. Mm -hmm. So I was really upset that I, that I, that it was a cliffhanger at the end, even though I knew it was coming. <laughs> uh, so now I have to wait. 
<laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I feel I, honestly, as I was writing, I was like, because I won't tell you which bit, but there was one thing that happens in that final chapter that I didn't know it was going to happen until I typed it. And I was like, oh, shit. oh no. <laughs> Oh, that's so important. That's got to be satisfying, but also like, oh, shit, I just threw a speed bump in. (laughs) A little bit, yeah, because now I'm like, oh, God, I've got to explain it now. I don't don't even know. (laughs) You're like, oh, yeah, we'll explain that next time. Uh, Next next one. Um, So everyone, I highly recommend check out all of Claire's stuff. If you want to hear Claire and I ramble about sexy ghosts and irritate Adam McNamara, check out the first episode of Under the Kilt. Um, This has been... uh, gosh darn delight i will drop all of your places to follow you and whatnot in the doobly-doo as per the usual uh as always you can find us at shared pod on instagram and twitter if you have any questions corrections or suggestions uh if you want to tell us your dream casting of greta joseph and francis you can send those to us via dm or you can email them to us at shared history podcast at gmail.com um all that and more in the notes as always uh until next time friends share Share you later broadsheet radio